Hey there, and welcome to Beer Branding Trends, conversations on building stronger craft beverage brands. Kodo Design has spent more than a decade working with craft food and beverage artisans, helping them to brand or rebrand, reposition, and reimagine what a compelling F&B brand can be. This show captures all of our field work and experience into practical strategies, tips, and tactics to help you build a stronger brand and sell more beer. I'm Isaac Arthur. And I'm Cody Fay. And this is the Beer Branding Trends Podcast. Hey, Cody, what's up? Not a whole lot. Isaac, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. Today, Cody, we're going to be diving into a topic we covered in our 2023 Beer Branding Trends Review, and that is paths to market for startups. Quick note here that this is part of our annual 23 Beer Branding Trends Review, but this is the first in a four-part series that we're sending exclusively to our newsletter subscribers. So, I say all that to say that the source material for this conversation is only available to subscribers in the newsletter. We're pulling that out, though, here to talk about because it's an interesting subject, and I think it'd be valuable for our listeners to hear. So if if you want to listen to this, that's cool. Please do. If you want to read about this, join the newsletter over at BeerBrandingTrends.com, and we'll we'll dive into it. Yeah, and and this issue covers what we're hearing, you know, both sort of in our new business inquiries. So if you want us to shine a little light on how the division of labor works— Isaac's handling incoming calls. I'm the creative director on projects that we end up signing. So we have that perspective of the maybe 30 to 50 breweries who reach out to us for a potential project. And that that may or may not end up in like actually working on a project with us. But we do hear kind of the situations those folks are in. And this section also includes some insight from the projects that we do end up taking on. So out of those 30 to 50 inquiries, say we end up working with half a dozen, you know, so we, we were going to talk a little bit about what we are seeing in that work. And Isaac, I know you've mentioned this before, but those kind of broader inquiries, whether they end up as a project for us or not, you know, the ones that maybe we end up even not partnering, partnering with for whatever reason, there is a lot of value in those conversations still though, right? Yeah, for sure. And that's why I'm always willing to jump on a a call. You know, I mean, there's actually that's where a lot of our ideas for future newsletters and ways we can better serve our own clients come from. It's interesting just seeing behind the scenes on so many early projects, whether we end up working with them or not. We get an idea of how people are funding their startups, how they're thinking about constructing their portfolios, what size breweries they want to build. It's a lot of real time, broad context and data for what models and concepts people are using all over the country, all over the world. But, uh, you know, obviously leaning heavily here in the States uh, to launch new breweries today. Yeah. So let's get the ball rolling. I don't like that. All right. Let me, (laughs) let me, let me read through my introductory, the introductory paragraph in this newsletter here. I think this will actually tee our conversation up nicely and we can, then we can get the ball rolling. The craft beer market is crowded and debt has become more expensive, but we are still working with a lot of groups that are planning to bring a new brewery to market. So contrary to a lot of headlines and talking heads out there who are saying otherwise, craft beer isn't dead, but this is a much more challenging market than we enjoyed from 2010 to 2020. Success is no longer a guarantee and new breweries today have far less margin for error as they come out of the gate. End quote. That's the lead into this this newsletter. Let's let's dive into it. So we are pulling today's outline directly from this beer branding trends newsletter issue. And just to kind of give a quick overview, we're, we're going to cover the following sections. We're going to talk about brew house and brewery sizing. So, you know, folks who are starting out or who are jumping into the industry, how how big are their systems? You know, what, what kind of scale are they thinking of operating at? We're going to talk a little bit about the evolving role that packaging plays for today's startup brewery. 
It's kind of an interesting shift that we've seen there. Another shift we're seeing and hearing is one towards food service and capital H hospitality. So, you know, restaurants, full kitchens, things like that. Also going to talk a little bit about people getting into the beer industry through M&A activity or, you know, specifically people that are buying formerly operating breweries or, or buying breweries that are like businesses that are currently running, kind of like in a turnkey operation sense as a way to get their foot into the industry. We're going to fill out the map a little bit. So where are people building breweries, you know, geographically? Where, where are we seeing folks putting in new operations? So the idea of no brick and mortar is another one. We are seeing a resurgence in contract brewing among startups, which is really interesting. And there are definite pros there and there are some caveats as well. Related to that point, we're going to talk a little bit about lifestyle brands. I know, I know we've talked about this around it and directly toward it in different ways throughout the course of the podcast, but just kind of updating some of the thinking and stuff that we're seeing there. And then a final point. And one that we're personally really excited about is reviving heritage IP brands. So yeah, brands yeah. that may have been around for a while in the past went away, but maybe still have some embedded mindshare or some kind of cool angle to them. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we have a lot of a lot of cool work on that front right now. And I think that we may just touch lightly on that on that last point specifically, heritage IP, touching that lightly and do a more deep dive episode down the line. But but yeah, let, let's kick off on point one, brewery and brew house sizing. Yeah. And I, I can speak to that since I work directly with our clients, but you should probably lead off since you're in those broader conversations as well. So I feel like your understanding of that would have a little bit more breadth than mine. Yeah, sure. So I mean, like what, like all topics, right? So across the board, we're seeing people be much more conservative with their initial build out. That's the top line lead here. There was a period in the mid 2010s where, you know, we saw a lot of people building 30 barrel, 20 barrel setups right out of the gate. Huge, huge breweries. We heard it over and over again. You know, if we're going to need in, in this kind of past time period, if we're going to scale and need to buy a larger system in five years anyway. Let's just bite that bullet and do it now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the rocket ship will never slow down, right? It was really fun, heady years, and we're working with some folks now who are coming to market with. There are a few with those bigger setups, you know, twenty, thirty, and we're just saying big, meaning twenty, thirty plus. But those folks are in unique markets. They're positioned in ways that make sense for that. I'm thinking of Bird's Mouth out of New Jersey and maybe Eckhart in Brooklyn. But but as a whole, we're seeing much more conservative build outs now. I haven't actually crunched the numbers. I'm curious if I, I doubt the BA tracks this sort of thing, but I'm curious if I, I feel like our average brewery size amongst our clients, at least the last cohort, the last kind of 18 months that we've worked with, the startups have, have been around maybe like seven barrel systems somewhere in there. Does that, that sound right to you? Yeah, more or less. I mean, I would cap that maybe at like 10 barrels at the highest for the most part, or, you know, maybe a 10 barrel system with larger fermenters and brights. I need to check with Logan to see what Western Flyer is putting in out in California. I embarrassingly cannot remember right now. Yeah. We've got one client who is coming to market with a smaller system at this time. I, I think it's five barrel uh, just off the top of my head, but that that's more related to their business model and kind of the the size constraints that they have in the space. You know, so that comes down to like, what can they literally fit 
in the physical space of their building. Yeah. And I just want to be clear, there's no value judgment when we're saying small or big or anything like that. I mean, you can go smaller than seven as well. If you're, if the model you're going after is a, you know, capital M, capital B, <laughs> kind of an old school term that we don't use very often, microbrewery, right? If you're going to be making 250 to three, 400 barrels a year, or sell them across the bar in your tap room, that's completely fine. And we're, we're obviously also, we're outside of our lane here. We're not experts on brewery sizing or production. So I'll just say that what we're seeing a lot of people do is put in seven to 10 barrel systems. It seems to be a sweet spot right now for our startup work. And that is a, I think, I think the more important conversation is just how people are being more conservative and, and tempering their initial build outs than in years past. I think, I think that's very important insight for where we are right now as an industry. Yeah. It, probably good to jump in here now and say that I don't think people are starting small and expecting necessarily to stay small. This approach is to me, my perception is that it's just calibrated for the market we're in right now. And, you know, likewise for the economy we're in right now, which I don't really need to tell anyone about what's going on there. They're still, right? yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. We're having a good time. Booming. You know, there still are not quite 10,000 breweries in America today, but that, that is a lot, a lot. Beer sales are actually going down. You know, they're in decline. Consumers are increasingly exploring beyond beer options and spirits and things like that as well. So that's happening. That's sort of informing a lot of this thinking. And financing has just gotten really hard to acquire. Everything's more expensive. Interest rates are higher. And it's a real struggle to convince someone to give you any money at all. On your point earlier about people putting in 30 barrel systems in place of like a seven barrel system back in 2015 or 2016, seven, eight years ago, we've had a few conversations with our clients who are growing and actively weighing whether or not it makes sense to put in one huge system in place of their starter setup versus just build another location entirely. You know, maybe there's another 10 barrel system in another tap room or a industrial kind of production facility. And you're just really using that to sell them on your owned premise for a higher margin. So not even a huge production facility necessarily. Like we're not talking like factory breweries and stuff, but more or less like cloning what they have now and just making that work better from a cash flow perspective. Yeah. I'm thinking back over the last two or three years, Prost is the only brewery I can think of that's putting in just, you know, an enormous production facility as a, as a way to scale. Most of our Mm -hmm. other, I I can think of two or three clients right now that are just putting in, I mean, exactly what you said. They're, they're essentially replicating what they have now, maybe a little bigger, but they're, that's interesting too. We're not going to thinking about getting over leveraged and cash flow, just managing it much more carefully than, than we might've, you know, seven years ago. It's very interesting. And we didn't directly touch on this in the piece because it's, it, this isn't coming up enough where I'd call it an actual trend, at least with startups, but it, this is definitely a trend amongst established breweries and, and just starting multiple. This is a thing that's been around forever, but it, I think it's becoming more of a more of a strategy today as well. Starting multiple locations is it, it, satellite tap rooms becoming a thing again, hub and spoke in your way to grow. I think it's going to be a more solid and viable business idea for for breweries moving forward, specifically new breweries who are who are worried about, you know, we just got this brewery open. Do we have the stomach to raise another or, or put down, you know, another 400 grand to open another spot versus maybe just put in a small satellite tap room or something like that? Yeah. And, you know, 
even just on that point of satellite tap rooms, maybe you don't need to build out that new brew system. If you haven't hit capacity on production and you just need another place to sell your own stuff, it, it might make sense to just open a bar essentially. And, and that is like a path to not meteoric growth right now, probably, but uh, probably a more reasonable path to incremental growth. If you can really nail that hospitality side of the business down, that can be a great model. I mean, you can really do a lot of damage with that. So I think uh, it's not a startup, certainly. It's probably about a 30-year-old brewery, but Upland here in Indiana has something like seven or eight different locations across the state. And obviously not here stateside, but Good George out of New Zealand, what do they have? You know, like 10 Oh, more bar. more than that, and and you know th- that that's where they kind of made their bones initially. So they already, ha- I mean, they were already essentially a hospitality company, so they had that baked in. But I I think there is something to looking toward folks like that and trying to apply some of that thinking to, you know, if, if you're just a one location brewing operation right now, there's a lot you can learn there. Sure. Yeah. Versus, oh, our, our path to growth is getting into di- distribution. You know, that, right. that's what we got to do. Yeah, right. maybe, but maybe there are other options too. So cool. Okay. To wrap this section up, I, I think the general theme would be one of tempered, <laughs> tempered exuberance compared to five or six years ago, to put it mildly. I, I think we're seeing people having much more dialed in business plans and much more interesting methods of funding their businesses as well. So not relying solely on one loan, but we, we work with people that are putting together uh, you know, we've, we've put together more pitch decks over the last few years than we have in the previous 10 or 12 years of business, right? We're helping people raise capital. This is maybe something we'll we'll kind of leave here and write about in the future, but or bring a, maybe even better, bring a guest on to speak about, but how are entrepreneurs funding their breweries today, their build outs? So anyway, that is the sizing of breweries and brew houses uh, that we are seeing in our startup brewery branding work today. What's our next section? Let's keep rolling here. Yeah. And this is definitely a, a newer phenomenon that we're seeing, at least from our work and, and kind of the folks that we rub up against and talk to. And I would say new start, you know, it, to put an actual pin in that starting maybe 2020 onward. And that is opening with packaged beer from day one. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going, please. So what makes this kind of interesting is that we work with more startup breweries who are planning to package their beer as soon as they open than folks who are not. So versus, I get, you know, the alternative obviously is you're just selling pints and that's it. You're not you're not selling any kind of carryout or anything like that. We worked with six or seven startup breweries last year, and I think only one or two were not planning to have any sort of packaging from day one. So, and that's kind of a shift from our work in the past where you know folks used to say, we'll get to packaging a year or two in, or, you know, we're still trying to figure out if a canning line makes sense or if mobile canning phase, or blah, blah, Phase blah, 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 blah. two, phase two, phase right. three. Yeah. That's yeah. not happening as much anymore, which is really interesting. The cool thing here is that most of these breweries are doing packaging exclusively for carryout. So packaging your beer no longer means that you have to get into distribution or that you have to scale your brewery up to make it make sense. Sometimes you're not ready to do that. Or maybe more importantly, you don't want to sign with a distributor before you even know what your business is going to look like in a few years. Uh, you don't want to lose that margin on your product that you inherently sort of sign away when you start working with a distributor. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not doing volume, then maybe that doesn't make sense. Our clients are seeing a lot of value in their packaging as a touch point, kind of as a way to get people to take more beer home and increase their average ticket size at the tap room as well. So per visit, getting folks to spend a little bit more per, per transaction. Yeah, that is an interesting COGS consideration. Putting your beer in packaging at that scale is going to be more expensive than selling it in draft, obviously. 
But to your point, you're not getting a haircut from the distributor in this case. So I haven't dug into the numbers, but I assume it works well. I mean, we're seeing so many breweries do it that I would assume that it makes money at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, you know, as long as you got enough folks coming in through the door and, and you make that attractive and easy for people to um, engage with carry out packaged beer, it, it can be a huge opportunity. So back to that earlier point about starting a small brewery and then scaling up to a less small brewery. Yeah, sure. Over time, you can kind of think of it this way as well. If you start with packaged beer right out of the gate, you'll be ready to start distributing whenever that opportunity appears as well. You won't have that kind of lag where you have to go, oh, shoot, now I need to hit the brakes on everything to get you know packaging design and depending on where I'm selling, get cola approval, get it all printed and ordered and spin that whole side of the business up. Can I ask a question that kind of makes me sad while I ask it? Yes, this this is a safe space. Yes. Are we sure about that? Okay. <laughs> when is the last time we designed a growler for someone? Oh, yeah. That, that makes me kind of sad too. It, it's been a little while. Now, growlers <laughs> are, are still sure. going strong. I, I think we did a growler for rebrand out in Colorado Springs. Yeah. For startups now, it's usually 16 ounce cans, but crowlers are still, I feel like crowlers are kind of stealing the growler role, but there's probably another angle here as well. You know, I remember our early days talking to brewers who just did not like growlers. Yeah. They hated them. Yeah. You know, guys who break their backs and, and put everything they have to make the perfect beer. And then some <laughs> doofus in saggy cargo shorts would roll up with a dirty growler to get a fill of it. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 growlers, I liked them personally when I was out of college just cause they were cheap, <laughs> Yeah, but they have drawbacks. And I think the crowler format has, has kind of slipped in there and taken a lot of the thunder away. So I don't have any data to back this up, but I think that introducing packaging from day one can help maintain your beer reputation and beer quality as well. You're just removing the, the variable of, you know, Joe Blow's, yeah, Joe Blow's <laughs> nasty growler with like lime buildup inside of it. That variable's gone. A little more on crowlers. There was a period maybe in 2018, 2019. We never saw them in our project work or even really locally. That has changed. Um, we're designing crowlers on, you know, not every single project, but I'd say one out of every two or three startups we work with right now, and definitely a lot more of our rebrands, they will generally do a growler template for the front of house folks. I think that we need to rebrand the growler <laughs> and, and not not as a, a disgusting moldy vessel, but but more of like a, a seasoned, like it's seasoned, you know, like, like it's flavor. It's more, it's more depth to the, the Pilsner that you're putting in there. One more question. Since we're on this topic, when is the last time you used a growler, Cody? It's pr it's probably been a while. I still have a feeling it's more recent than me, though. Yeah, it probably was. I'll be real honest. It's it would be before COVID that I you oh, know that damn. I took a okay. glass crap because all the places around here that I like to get beer just have packaged beer now. Yeah, so sure. you know, I'd rather grab cans and recycle those. Uh, you know, I mean, like, how about you? That has to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to be even because like you were on the I just straight up don't like growlers train way before I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I actually got one. I think it was maybe last fall. I actually got a growler built to last Pilsner from Chili Water. So just walk down the block. It, it was on a whim. 
I was going out to, and they do have that in cans as well, but I was going out to the farm to do some work and I expressly just wanted to drink from a jug starting at like 10 a.m. I thought, it, I thought it'd be fun. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I need to do that. that yeah. That, that sounds both economical and safe. Yeah. Economical for sure. Nothing focuses you for chainsaw work like a handle of, of Pilsner. So there's another point to be made here, and we may pause and just treat this as a future newsletter or maybe podcast episode rather, but do you think there's anything here? So all these new breweries coming to market with packaging, the idea of your packaging as your brand, does that does that even make sense? Hmm. I don't know that it... <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I will say this about packaging. It's obviously an incredibly important touch point, and for breweries, maybe the most important when you can, when you're able to execute on it. So I can see it from that perspective. I'm actually not sure exactly what that question means other than that. So I can't give, I can't give a more definite answer. I, I was trying to throw out something that sounded profound in the hopes that you would make it make sense. And I'm not sure either, actually. So let's just leave that there. Pretend it didn't happen. Move on to the next section. I will think about that a little more. I want to see if there, if there's something there. Uh, where are we? You go. Where are we now? Okay. Our next section is the shift toward hospitality and food service. Mm-hmm. So, you know, real deal restaurants. Yeah. Keep going, please. And we don't have to spend a ton of time here, but we are seeing more breweries who intend to put in a real restaurant. So we're going to not do the sometimes really good, but sometimes kind of sketchy and flaky food trucks. Yeah. Um, and we're going to not just like have a bag of pretzels <laughs> or whatever. And we're going to put in a little kitchen or maybe a, a, a panini a panini press. Yeah. yeah a George Foreman grill in the back <laughs> with uh, lean pockets in, in a, in a, that sounds good. actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're going to put in a little kitchen or maybe a big kitchen We've got a few clients who actually come from like hospitality proper, so mm-hmm. have hospitality degrees and have careers in it. So imagine someone who works at like a national hospitality company, the type of brands that manage dozens of different chains, and they're bringing that type of mindset to building a brew pub. Yeah, I'm like, thinking like, of, like like Darden or uh, Let Us Entertain You that 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 scale you're talking about. Precisely. So like I'm thinking of David and Dead Words, one of our clients down in Orlando. Mm -hmm. as a great example of that. That's his background and that's kind of the mindset he brought to it. So the reason this is kind of interesting and, you know, we're even kind of hearing this from folks who aren't putting in food. It's just the simple fact that getting customers to come in and spend money isn't easy anymore. And the idea that every place that opens needs every competitive advantage that they can possibly have to get folks to come in and sit down and drink a beer and stay for a little while and things like food can be a big part of that. Yeah. And I'm not sure that we need to caveat this because it's obvious, but running a restaurant is every bit as challenging as running a brewery. The margins are, you know, it's just, it's, it's a tough business to be in. That's why restaurants historically close. And that was pre, you know, 2020 madness anyway. So there's a lot that goes into making your restaurant, making sure that it's well executed and you actually make money in the entire thing. So just Make sure that if you're going into this, that you you do your due diligence and make sure that it actually makes sense. We are seeing a major shift towards this, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you just, okay, add a brewery to our, our or add a restaurant <laughs> to our brewery concept. Good. We're done. Mm-hmm. We should yeah. probably have someone on to talk about this at some point. Yeah. Eddie from Big Lug jumps to mind immediately. Again, he's a guy who like has the degree in hospitality and his family just, he, he was baptized in it essentially. Yeah. 
Yeah, we probably cheese. have him on like yeah. every other episode. <laughs> he was ba- baptized in cheese when he was a kid. Yeah, grew up in a kitchen. Yeah, with his dad. <laughs> yeah, we should have you. We should just replace me and have yeah. you and Eddie on every episode. You think he'd be open to that? I I, I like that idea. Actually. Yeah, he'd get on. He'd get on here and talk shit. He'd love that. We we could also bring on John from La Margarita or Dan from Chili Water. A couple a couple folks spring to mind. Yeah, all all of our all star local clients banding together and conquering conquering the world or at least central indiana yeah you'll love to see it (laughs) okay our next section covers people who are getting into the brewing industry by buying or hermit crabbing their way into a turnkey operation now i I think we recorded a podcast episode about this you also wrote a popular newsletter issue on this topic i think it was last year yeah why don't you quickly outline what you're seeing here on this topic Sure. Really quickly for listeners, we'll drop the podcast and newsletter link in the show notes here. The The newsletter was called So You Bought a Brewery to Rebrand or Not to Rebrand. And, and that is that is the on-ramp for a lot of these conversations. I don't. I know we've kind of joked in our last episode, I don't think that every brewery in the country is for sale, but I do think that something like 80%, of, 80 or 90% <laughs> are, uh, or they would entertain a, a proper offer right now. So I have zero hard data to support that, but we, we're just, we're talking with people who are buying breweries and want to rebrand them or asking us for our opinion on how to handle that branding several times a month now. I'll be on a call with someone who's planning to buy a brewery and, or who has already bought one and now they're ready to revamp the branding, add packaging, revamp the website, whatever it is. I'll leave the kind of financial dire straits and broader macroeconomic stuff out of this and just say that from a startup perspective, because that's what we're talking about here today, paths to market for startups, a group that is buying a brewery, this, this, we're seeing a lot of new, not new entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs who are getting into the beverage or beer industry for the first time. And I think, I think this can actually work really well in some cases. If you're, think about like, if you're an operator in particular, you know, you're good at building systems, you're good at running off a playbook, you're good at putting in SOPs, you're good at building teams. We've worked with some serial entrepreneurs who have opened, you know, multiple businesses over the years. If you understand how to scale a business, then and you want to open a brewery, buying a brewery, a turnkey operation can be a really good way of getting into the industry, especially today. There are so many opportunities to do that. We wrote about this uh, covering our rebranding work with Mission Brewing out of San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, let me let me just interrupt you rudely. I think maybe an analog here. My wife and I, we briefly considered building a custom house or home. <laughs> building a few years ago, but we ultimately decided we're just, we're going to buy one. I mean, we just, I think there's, I think there's an interesting parallel here. We didn't want the hassle of managing a build out, you know, while also raising a family, while building this business, while doing what she does, it's just a disaster. So if you're out there and you want to open a brewery today, think about how many opportunities there are just to get into an existing setup and bypass all that headache, all the zoning, all the what have we what what have we heard for years, Cody? You know, double your timeline, triple your budget. Just that <laughs> the the build out headache that goes along the way. You just buy a brewery. I mean, if if you're wanting to get into it anyway, and you can secure the funding, you can write a check, grab the keys, and you're good to go. It's just that simple. It's just that easy. Yeah, it, it really is. There's nothing. There's n- <laughs> it running a biz running a brewery is is super easy. Obviously, a bit more to it, but. This is an interesting path into the industry right now. And if our current inquiries and projects are any indicator, I mean, this is just going to be the norm for the coming years. I mean, there are going to be so many breweries sold. Uh, I, I think the I wish the BA would track it. I'm, I need to ask Bart about that. But anyway, 
we will move on without, so I stopped uh, repeating myself. The next point in this section in this newsletter is called filling out the map. And this, th- we can touch on this shortly. This just focuses on where people are putting in breweries, so where people are building their breweries. The quick take here is that new breweries are still going in all over the country. And as an example, I'm probably going to forget a few, but we've worked with startups over the last few years in Brooklyn, Orlando, right outside of Cleveland, San Francisco. The more interesting point that we're trying to make in this section is that we're seeing a lot of interest and inquiries in suburban or even, you know, kind of exurban slash rural spots for breweries. So a lot of people are are eyeing these overlooked markets and targeting those to put in new concepts, which is kind of cool. Yeah, we do a lot of beer branding work with Canadian breweries and are seeing this up there as well. Done a lot of work in and around Toronto and, and Ontario specifically. We're also working with breweries in smaller cities, a little bit more far-flung provinces and markets all across the country right now. Some of them are actually kind of out in, you know, a rural or at least a non-metro area. Yeah, yeah. And this could be a bit of that 2020, everyone's leaving the big city for remote work because they wanted to anyway, or, you know, just kind of that narrative. I'm not sure if that's the case here or that it even matters, but we are seeing more breweries opening that aren't in your traditional big metro area. There are also certain metro areas like Charlotte comes to mind that are just absolutely exploding because it's cheaper to live in Charlotte and work your financial tech job than to try to pay for a place in New York or Connecticut or wherever. So we're seeing a lot of growth that way. That kind of goes the other way as well. Is there anything else to say here? No, I, I think that all makes sense. I mean, if you're going to open a brewery and you're you're in Denver, well, you're automatically going to be competing with... <laughs> 500, you know, that's exaggerated, but you know, like yeah. hundreds of other breweries. So, I mean, why not move or open up an out just an hour away? I think that that's common sense. And I think that, you know, we've talked about this a few times over the years when people talk about how many, you know, people fixate on the number. There are 9,500 breweries in the country. Oh my gosh. How many breweries can we sustain? I mean, I think we could sustain, I won't say infinite, but if you look at suburbs, exurbs, I mean, just thousands and thousands and thousands of breweries we could, we could add if they're just treated more like local bars, but that, you know, different conversation, I suppose. Anyway, we'll leave that there. We can touch on our next few points. Actually, all three of these can kind of be lumped together and then we can wrap up this conversation. So we're seeing a lot more breweries come to market. You mentioned earlier via contract brewing. This has been around forever, certainly, and candidly, most of our non-beer beverage brands, so we do a ton of work in kombucha, RTDs, cannabis, standalone seltzer brands, less so today, but we've done a lot of hard seltzer brands, non-alc products, beverages. Almost all of these groups come to market without building a facility. That's kind of the norm when spinning up a new beverage brand. You know, you have a, a beverage architect partner, a development partner like Flavorman. You work with a co-packer and a distributor. Kodo comes in, handles your branding, positioning, go-to-market stuff. And you're, you're, you're essentially in business. I mean, you can go to market. What we're seeing now is more breweries do this as well, which is a market increase from, from years past. And to reiterate, this isn't necessarily new, but we are hearing it and seeing it an awful lot more mm-hmm. in our project work right now. Debt is expensive. People are wanting to test the market before investing what you have to invest in terms of time and resources and stress um, into building out a facility and, and doing all of that properly. And we could probably kind of roll into the next point then after this because they're just so often tied closely together. And that is looking at lifestyle brands and the role that those are playing in the market right now for going to market. 
a lot of the conversations I'm having in new business or business development, a lot more people are explicitly using this language and, and wanting to come to market to build lifestyle brands. You have written about this. Have we recorded an episode on this topic yet? <laughs> this is this is one that we actually no no I, this is one that's been on the list forever and, and we wrote the newsletter you know a year ago we actually haven't uh, we maybe we'll we'll push that up and do it soon so let's stay tuned we'll we'll record we will record a dedicated episode on lifestyle brands soon very well we'll have a more dedicated episode on this topic in the future for now is there anything else to say for listeners who are interested in lifestyle brands and any kind of point that we can make there. No, we will just leave them hanging. So I will <laughs> I will put a link to the lifestyle brand issue of Beer Breeding Trends in the show notes. I also just mentioned that I think the reason we're seeing so many breweries and non non beer, you know, just Bevalk brands lean into lifestyle brands right now is is because of the focus and differentiation opportunities that they provide you. I mean to be well done a lifestyle brand targets an established group of people who are interested in a specific thing or a collection of related things or activities or, you know, lifestyles. So skiing or fly fishing or coding or rock climbing or whatever, you know, I, I think there are a whole lot of outdoorsy lifestyle brands. It's, that's that's mm-hmm. definitely a, a trope. But the benefit here is that you know exactly who you're speaking to and exactly what they are into, and you know exactly how you can market your brand to those people. That's why this is such a, a common thing today. Yeah. I mean, if you're starting without a brick and mortar location, it's easy to see why this can help at least give people a conceptual space to play in when they think about your products, even if there isn't a physical one. So to kind of steal a line from your newsletter, uh, we think this is just a safer play now in a market with 9,000 plus breweries. This can just be a more rock solid bet than opening a tap room in a city full of other tap rooms where you're just going to constantly be fighting for people's attention and money. Yeah, for sure. And, and there's, they're also just kind of in the zeitgeist. Montucky Cold Snacks, uh, Liquid Death is taking over the world. I mean, they're they're probably mm-hmm. a unit. They're probably unicorn status. I mean, they're probably well over a billion dollar in valuation. I mean, they're just they're brands that are doing this and completely taking the world by storm. So it's just a thing that people are are more aware of today, and they're they're doing that much more leanly than you know building out like investing you know tens of millions of dollars to build a facility. They're just doing it. Lean, so it's it, really interesting, and and we'll yeah we will record an episode on that soon uh, once we get through the the throng of <laughs> 2023 beer branding trends topics that we're covering here. Our final point in this section, and we can actually yeah I, I do want to skip this too. I want to I want to talk about this in a future episode because we have so many moving projects on this front right now. The final point is reviving heritage IP brands. Yeah, uh, we should probably wait until our work with Hoster and are out in the wild and maybe we can interview both of them. Yeah. Hoster in particular is going to take over the world when they launched great concept and, and just selfishly, uh, personally, maybe some of the best work I think our team has ever put out in 13 or 14 years. And I'm not sure we can talk about yet. We may need to, may need to. Th- yeah. Probably go ahead and bleep that one All out. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, stay tuned on these projects as well. Cause they're exciting and maybe a newsletter is coming down the pipe as yes. well. It sounds yeah. like yeah, at some point. Yes. Okay. So this has been an overview of what we're seeing new breweries do and what they're thinking about as they come to market so far in our project work here over the last 12 to 18 months. It is. Yeah. We've already gotten some great feedback on this specific newsletter, this newsletter issue. So we'll keep a running tab on this moving forward. And, and maybe maybe this can be an annual thing. You and I record new episodes on this topic as we come across anything interesting happening in brewery startups moving forward. So thanks for your time, Cody. Catch up with you soon. Bye.
Thanks for listening to Beer Branding Trends. If you like what we're doing here, if you find this valuable, please rate and review us over on iTunes. And head over to beerbrandingtrends.com to join more than 5,000 subscribers who receive our monthly email newsletter covering strategy, currents, and actionable advice from Kodo Design, a branding firm on the front lines of beer and beverage branding. Take care. We'll catch back up with you soon. Thank you.